wannabe dispensary owners in New York are kind of in this weird in-between time because if you are not a social equity applicant, you have to prove that you have retail space for your dispensary in order to be eligible for a license. So that means that right now, even before the license window opens up, it means that dispensary owners are looking for space without knowing that they will ever really get their license. It's Monday, and this is Deconstruct, a podcast by The Real Deal. Today, we're talking about cannabis, and I promise that it actually relates to real estate. (laughs) Right. So now that marijuana sales are illegal in New York, sellers obviously need space to get the product out. And that's opened up opportunities for retail landlords. But the logistics are still pretty murky. So I chatted with TRD's editorial assistant, Kaylee LaPara, last month about this and how landlords are still navigating how to best lock in dispensaries as tenants. Right. So we'll hear from her a little bit later on. But for now, we wanted to get to the biggest news of the week. Um, Maybe we can just start with the news that no one wants to hear. I know mortgage rates have jumped above 6% for the first time since 2008. Just for context, last year, the average rate on a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage, which is the most popular option, was 2.86%. So I know that I did this math a little while ago. I did this when we spoke to Bess Friedman about the state of the luxury market, but it is just getting so much more expensive to buy a home. Mm -hmm. Buying a $1 million house last year at that 2.86% would have cost about $4,300 a month. Now, that same house, nothing has changed, that same price point, it's going to cost more than $6,000 a month. Right, which is, that's a huge jump. And the bad news is that if you bought a home in the past few months, it's likely worth less than what you mortgaged it for. And the worst news is that a bunch of folks who've been sidelined for the past two years because prices have been so high, they're still not really able to get in because prices are still so high in most markets. Um, I will say that the silver lining is, I was listening to a panel this week, experts are very adamant that there's not a housing bubble. We've covered this before, but the idea here is that the sky-high prices, those derived from true demand, and lenders haven't been making mortgages willy-nilly like they were ahead of the 2008 financial crisis. Also, home builders didn't overbuild. So it's a little bit of a comfort, I guess. It's a different situation than 2008. For sure. Speaking of housing, I did want to bring up one of the most popular articles on our site last week, which was about all of the issues around tenant screening. And I really had no idea that this existed. But our reporting fellow, Nisha Shetty, and researcher Jay Young looked at various federal lawsuits. They interviewed housing law advocates, and they reviewed data from the Federal Trade Commission and the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. So basically... Firms sell landlords information on tenants. We all know this, right? Everything from whether a tenant has a criminal record, whether they're on a terrorist watch list. But what the story found was that a lot of the time, this information is misleading or it's straight up false. Yeah. I loved that story because it came out of a personal experience, which I think is 
I don't know, so interesting. So Nisha told me that she had actually ordered a background check for herself and it came back botched. The firm that conducted it thought that she was an 80-year-old man. So she was like, what is going on here? She's um, like, this is a story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. On to the big deals of the week. Not necessarily a deal to start, but certainly a blowout listing. Gary Barnett has a penthouse for sale at the city's tallest tower, and the asking price is... $250 million. That's right, it's a quarter of a billion dollars. And maybe calling it an apartment is an understatement. It's a 17,500 square foot property on the 98th floor of a skyscraper that is situated on, you could probably guess, Billionaire's Row. So obviously we'll see if anyone actually wants to pay that price. No sale has even come close this year. The top deal was for $101 million, and that was when the estate of the late Microsoft founder Paul Allen sold two units at 4 East 66th Street. Yeah, and obviously that is just the listing price. Who knows if it'll actually sell at that $250 million mark. In California, Mark Andreessen the venture capitalist, reportedly put up his seven-acre estate in Malibu for $250 million, and it ended up selling for $177 million, which obviously that is still ridiculously high, but it would not come close. It didn't come close to its asking price. Mm-hmm. So if it did actually sell, it would come out to more than two of the largest office deals last week, which is kind of wild. On the Upper East Side, Sloan Kettering, the hospital, bought a medical center for $185 million. And it was interesting, in the story, the hospital's COO said the deal would actually control costs because they would be consolidating their leased footprint into one owned space, which I thought was interesting. And then in downtown Brooklyn, NYU, which is one of the biggest property owners in New York, actually, they bought an office tower for $122 million that's actually right next door to their Tannen School of Engineering. So it'll be interesting to see if they, you know, expand that out or use it as extra, you know, research space. It'll be, you know, I'm curious to see what they do with that. Yeah, no, completely. So that covers the top deals of the week. Turning to development, it looks like New York City's plan to finally have a casino in Midtown is inching forward. So Related Companies has teamed up with Wynn Resorts to bid on one of three new casino licenses. It'll still be several months before the winners of the sites are announced, but it's no real surprise that Related is in on this considering their work on Hudson Yards. It's just another opportunity to stamp that neighborhood. And I know that it seems like every week we're talking about Adam Newman and his very public return. I think we mentioned this a few episodes ago, but Newman scored a really hefty investment from Andreessen Horowitz, one of Silicon Valley's most prominent venture capital firms. But this week, according to the Wall Street Journal, we found out that $350 million investment came with a pretty interesting caveat that we don't really see a lot. So Andreessen Horowitz will actually take a stake in the apartment buildings that Newman's firm owns. So over the last couple of years, since his very public ousting as CEO of WeWork, Newman has bought up stakes in thousands of apartments across the country, mostly in the Sunbelt region. His new venture, it's called Flow, now control these stakes. And with their new investment, Andreessen Horowitz will now own part of those buildings. Yeah, I feel like that venture is going to offer us so much more 
from a news perspective over the next few months. Um, everyone is eager to hear, you know, what flow will entail. All right. So on to our main event. Kaylee LaPera is here to chat about cannabis and real estate and what tipped her off to the story in the first place. Cannabis is basically one big industry that can't be done online if it's regulated. Yeah, so I kind of immediately saw that angle and I just wanted to know what, you know, what that was going to mean for the retail industry in New York. So let's start with kind of an update on where marijuana sales are now. So in March 2021, then Governor Cuomo legalized recreational use, but almost a year and a half later, you still can't walk into a dispensary and buy weed. So can you talk a little bit about the red tape that still stands between consumers and that storefront access? Yes. Yeah, there has been a lot of red tape. First, not least because actually Cuomo kind of spent six months after uh, legalizing weed, not really setting up any of the industry. I feel like he had maybe some other stuff going on at that point. But once Hochul got into office or her administration really hit the ground running, So I think it's helpful to kind of think of dispensaries as really the last step in this legalization process, um, which is just getting weed out to customers in New York. A ton of stuff had to happen before that. Actually, the law that legalized recreational marijuana in New York, which is called the Marijuana Regulation and Taxation Act, or MRTA for short, it was passed, I guess, without very many regulations in place at all for the industry. So basically what it did was it made weed legal for adults over 21, um, as in you could possess it, you could smoke it wherever you can smoke cigarettes without getting arrested, Um, but you can't sell it because there's no guidelines in place to get licenses and you're not allowed to sell without a license. So right, so in order to get um, dispensaries set up, we first have to have some product And uh, to that end, the uh, Office of Cannabis Management, which is the state's oversight board for the industry, actually just gave out their first cultivator licenses, which means that we'll have some product to sell in dispensaries once they're set up, because actually all marijuana that is sold in New York has to be grown in New York. It cannot cross state borders. Is that because it's still illegal on a federal level that no crossing state borders? Yes. Okay, got it. Exactly. Yeah, no interstate commerce on federally illegal substances. We can actually now expect that the first dispensary licenses and maybe even the first dispensary sales will happen before the end of this year. And those first licenses are going out to a super specific group of people. The licenses are called Conditional Adult Use Retail Dispensary Licenses, or again, CARD for short. Um, And those licenses will go out specifically to people who have had marijuana convictions in the past or their family members. Um, And this sort of speaks to a really central point of the MRTA, which is uh, its social equity component. So in passing, in legalizing marijuana, the state was very serious in emphasizing social equity. And so part of that is making space in the industry for people who were most affected by the war on drugs. And so in this case, it's going to be um, uh, people with 
prior convictions on marijuana charges. For those card applicants, what will be the process for connecting them with storefronts? Yeah, so this is another really interesting, and again, social equity element of it, which is the state is doing something that no other state has done, according to some sources, uh, which is they have set up this program called the Seeding Opportunity Initiative through which the state has allocated $200 million to build dispensaries for these card applicants. We're thinking it's around 150 dispensaries throughout the state before the year 2024. The effect of that is a few things. It's to relieve those applicants of the these really, really hefty costs of setting up a dispensary because the construction costs are just really high. Do we know if they're going to be like building all of these storefronts from scratch or could some of that money go towards an existing storefront that needs to be refurbished? CVRE is partnering with the state to pick out these sites. So from what it sounds like, it's going to be existing storefronts and that money will go to basically, I I guess, refurbishing or at least doing the construction to set up the dispensary which can involve maybe implementing like pretty high tech security or, you know, setting, setting up the retail space, maybe having to set up some sort of like vestibule in the front where people can check licenses. What are some of the worries for retail landlords that are considering, you know, dipping into the marijuana market and leasing to some of those applicants? Yeah, there are quite a number of risks that landlords might take on and, there are these two big categories of, you know, small business owners and multi-state operators, which are dispensary operators who, you know, they have places set up in California, Colorado, other places where dispensaries have have been up and running, um, and they're looking to make inroads in New York. So landlords definitely see a distinction between those two, which is that a multi-state operator probably has more access to just capital where they can, uh, you know, they can feel a little bit more secure that this person will pay their rent and get their license and be able to run a successful business versus smaller businesses who might be first-time dispensary operators based in New York. Maybe they've been looking forward to this for a long time, um, but they maybe don't have much, if any, experience actually running a dispensary. Landlords do kind of see that distinction as a risk uh, that do favor the multi-state operators. But then there are risks that do apply to, I'd say, both groups um, and the dispensary business in general. Dispensary owners are, or wannabe dispensary owners in New York are kind of in this weird in-between time because if you are not a social equity applicant, you have to prove that you have retail space for your dispensary in order to be eligible for a license. So that means that right now, even before the license window opens up, it means that dispensary owners are looking for space without knowing that they will ever really get their license. So transitioning into financing, um, I know that's another big variable because marijuana is still a Schedule One drug federally. So how does that affect banking and how does it affect the applicant's ability to readily get financing? 
It's a big obstacle because marijuana is illegal at the federal level and because a lot of loans are backed by FDIC member banks, that causes kind of a conflict of interest, meaning that most traditional financing is kind of not an option for these business owners. So for instance, you know, landlords who have a pretty long-term mortgage on their storefront are taking a risk by by leasing their space to a dispensary owner because even though it's illegal in New York, if they have a federally backed loan, they're technically breaking the law. So I'm not sure, you know, how strictly that is going to be enforced, but it's it's a risk and I think landlords tend not to want to take huge risks like that with their space. The other week I spoke with a broker in New York who also runs a dispensary in Massachusetts who's, you know, it's a completely legal dispensary, but his business bank account just got shut down out of the blue one day. He's banking with like an FDIC member bank and he's using it for what's considered an illegal operation. Um, So that also presents a risk to both business owners and to landlords if your tenant's bank account can just get shut down. You know, they kind of leave like maybe private lenders as an option, which just as a baseline are more expensive anyway, because private lenders are a little bit more risk averse, so their interest rates are higher. And then on top of it, interest rates are just going up across the board. So um like borrowing money is just going to be really, really expensive for any cannabis business right now. So given all the obstacles that we talked about, talking to landlords and brokers for this story, how does it seem like demand is shaking out for sites that are available? You know, they're just telling me like, we are, we're getting people to sign leases there. I'm getting, I'm showing places day after day, multiple places a day to multiple either tenants, landlords, whatever. So it sounds like people really are interested. I don't know exactly how many of those inquiries turn into actual lease signings, but I think the demand is there. Um, I think there are a lot of people who really want to get in on this business and want to get in on it early, partly because they have to get in on it early um, for the license eligibility thing. Yeah, I think people have been waiting for this for a long time and are just glad that they can finally start looking because there is sort of a light at the end of the tunnel with the first licenses about to come out, which really means that it seems like after those those first card licenses go out, it's just going to break open, you know, the pool for everyone else um, not too far after that. Yeah, it does. Also, I would think that, you know, once these stores start going up, it's going to be a boost for whatever else is in the area. Like I I remember when I was living at my mom's, which is like in rural Pennsylvania in the COVID winter before we got vaccinated, we went out to get like a pizza and I saw a bunch of people like coming out of the medical marijuana dispensary and then going to the pizza store and it was Friday night and I was like, what a perfect combo. <laughs> That is a perfect combo. So I <laughs> yeah I see for like grocery there. stores nearby. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I've heard that there's some hesitancy on the part of maybe, 
you know, the landlord of a building who's got like retail space at the bottom of like a some high-end office or some like big residency, like a, like a big apartment building. But I've also heard arguments in the other direction where like people want a dispensary at the bottom of their office. You know, it'll get used. It People will go there. Again, it's hard to say how it's going to shake out, but I do think, um, I think you're right. There's, you know, it's not just that this one business is going up and people are only going to go there. It definitely touches a lot of other, the rest of the block. Deconstruct airs every Monday wherever you get your podcasts, so subscribe now. Next week, we're talking to Ryan Serhant about his new firm, the state of brokerages, and so much more. Tune in then.